You're listening to the New Hope Church podcast. To learn more about what we're doing on the south side of Indianapolis, you can check us out online at becomehope.com. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure you check out one of our companion podcasts. We have a daily devotional podcast called Let's Find Out Together, as well as an apologetics podcast called Salty Saints. Let's listen in. Today's talk comes from Zach Killy. What's up, everybody? I'm Zach. I'm one of the pastors at New Hope. And uh, today we're going to be continuing our, work, our uh, walk through the book of Esther. We are on this new series. It's called It's Time. Uh, we're talking a lot about Esther for a few weeks. Seems like there's not a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, the first week, Randy walked us through um, the outline of things. He kind of showed us what the book looks like at, at a you know 10,000 foot view. Last week, we decided let's pick like one theme and dive in a little deeper. We, we talked about anger. We talked about what that looks like, and we kind of explored that theme throughout Esther. This week, I want to dive in on something just a little bit different. I want to be looking out for a new theme, but it's a little bit broader. It's about purpose. It's about timing. It's about placement. I think when we look at the book of Esther, we see this concept of being in a very particular place at a very particular time, and that matters. And so I want to jump into that. I want to look at chapter four specifically today, but we're not going to do that just yet. I want to kind of summarize things very quickly, quicker than last time yet. Uh, To give you the background, the story starts in Persia. Wait a minute, Zach, you said Babylon. Well, I'm dumb, and I was wrong. It's kind of confusing because it is Babylon originally. That's what the book of Daniel is talking about. And then the Persian Empire takes over. So it is quite literally, in the truest terms, it's Persia. want to make that clear. We're in Persia. We got a king. What's his name? Xerxes, Artaxerxes. We're not 100% sure, but it's one of those guys, okay? And he is having a giant party. And he wants to show off his beautiful wife. But she says, no, I'm not going to be treated like a piece of meat. And so she declines. He divorces her. He banishes her. Then he has his Babylon's next top model pageant. He brings in all the virgins of the area, right? All the most beautiful women. That is where our girl Esther comes into the picture. She is Jewish. She is an orphan. And she's being raised by her relative Mordecai, who is a very good man. And he tells her, hey, you should go do this thing. Go enter this thing. She goes into this competition. The king is smitten by her. He thinks she's beautiful, but he actually seems to love her, to respect her, right? And so he accepts her. He makes her his wife. That's when we learn about this plot that Mordecai overhears. A couple of guys that are in the king's service are plotting to kill him. So Mordecai goes, tells Esther, Esther tells the right people, gets these guys out of the picture, saves the king's life, but now the king has to fill a position in his cabinet, so he brings in a man named Haman, that's the bad guy in this story. Haman thinks that he is hot stuff, he thinks that everybody should bow down in his presence when he passes by them, but Mordecai won't do it, because Mordecai is a Jew, and he will only bow down to the one true God, and so Mordecai, sorry, Haman, makes this huge plot, okay? He's going to not only kill Mordecai, but he's going to kill all of the Jews. And so he goes and he tricks the king into okaying this. And then 
that leads us to chapter 4 where we're at now. Mordecai has found out that this is going to happen. So he goes and he puts on sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning. He and a bunch of other Jews. And they go to the gates of the castle, but they're not allowed in the actual palace because they're in sackcloth. And so they're all at the gates mourning. And Esther hears about this, but she wants to know what's going on. She's not really sure. So she goes to her uh, eunuch advisor, Hathik, and he is sent out to go see what's going on with Mordecai. That's where we're at in the story, okay? So let's jump to chapter 4, 6 through 17. Here's what it says. So Hathik went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him of everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathik went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. What do we see happening here? We see Esther is put in a really tough spot. She has just learned that all of her people are going to die. All of them. Maybe even her. You know, Mordecai says, don't think you're safe. You know, she's the queen. Maybe she would be safe. I don't know. But is she really willing to gamble that? Is she really willing to like be like, well, I'll just sit here in my little tower protected by my king husband and let all my people die? No, that's, that's crazy. That's awful. But she's also got this other thing going on, is that if she does do something about it, she is walking herself directly into the face of danger because the law stands that if you aren't invited into the king's court, you die. But she says, if I die, I die. I will set my comfort aside. I will set aside my prestige. I will set aside my cushy life. And I'm going to go maybe die because that's what it's going to take to save my people. I'm going to go put myself in harm's way. And she does. 
That's how the story goes. She, she ends up saving everybody because she walks into the king's court and instead of meeting her with wrath, he looks at her and he says, what can I do for you? But she still put it all on the line. Like, had he not loved her, had he not wanted to spare her life, that's it. But she did. The danger was real. It was very real. It was very present. But she was the right person because she had influence over her husband, the king. So she did it. And she saves all the Jews. That's so cool. So the question is, what does that have to do with us today? Right? Um... Spoiler alert, this is going to be like the same kind of thing we always talk about. For those of you uh, who were here after church last week, we had our covenant members meeting downstairs. And I'll just kind of give you the the spark notes version here. Um, We had this little presentation in the beginning that showed the church's trend over the last like 20 some years. First, we started with New Hope, right? And it's this like, downward decline. You see, it's, it's up here. The numbers are high. I think they're in like the 750, 800 range for a while. And then the numbers start, start doing this, right? And it just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going and going. And so it'd be really easy to look at that and be like, oh, this is a management issue. We've just had all the wrong people over the years. We've just screwed this thing up. And then we did a really cool thing. Uh, Chris McFall put this whole thing together. George presented it. It was awesome. Thank you guys for that. They then overlay the national trend. And when you put the national trend up against New Hope, it's uncanny. It's just this almost the same decline. And so you look at that and you quickly realize we have a problem. Now, the problem is not just like New Hope. I mean, New Hope's Relatively good. We're, 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 we're afloat. We're, we're honestly better than the average in some ways today. We're okay. We're doing as good as anybody else is doing right now, but nobody's doing good right now. That's the point. When you look at these numbers, we have a cultural issue. We have a deep rooted problem in the United States of America, in Western civilization as a whole, really. And that is, I'm going to drop my stats that I've been dropping lately on you, that seven out of every ten people you know right now are going to hell because they don't know Jesus, the one person who can save anybody. You look at other statistics. Kerry Newhoff's been doing this study, And he's kind of kept up with it for the last few years. But he did this. He basically showed that there are no more stable churches. No churches are stable anymore. You're all either growing or you're dying. Those are the two categories almost, I think it's like 90% of churches are in. There's like 10 that would say they're stable. But hey, we're optimistic, right? You're either growing or you're dying. And when you look at this, you start to break down, wait, So the growth on those ones that are growing, where's it coming from? Ah, you start breaking that down, it's almost 0% conversion. It's almost 0% new people joining the church. What is happening today in America is people 
are leaving dying churches and then they go to the new happy, awesome, healthy, cool show church that we all like and then that's why it's growing and then eventually that one dies and you leave it and you go to a new church and then that one dies and you leave it and you go to a new church. But there's no new people joining the church. There's no people being saved. Seven out of every ten people are dying. And if you look at those numbers going like this, you tell me where that ends. Because the number for people that will never go to church is doing this. Why do I bring that up? It's kind of a similar situation to Esther's. We can talk about numbers all day, and numbers don't do anything. Numbers are just numbers. But those numbers represent very real people in your life. They represent your neighbor, your family, your friends, your kids, your parents, your coworkers. They represent the people you know. And it doesn't do us enough good to just assume they're okay. Seven out of every ten. I bring this up because I think Jesus has a lot to say about this. Let's jump over and let's look at John 4, 31 through 38. This is right after Jesus gets done talking to the Samaritan woman, right? And his disciples come up to him and they're looking at him and they're like, man, he needs to eat. He's been working hard. He is worn out. They look at him and they say, Rabbi, eat something. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. His disciples look at each other and they're like, did somebody bring him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. What's happening here? Well, one, I think Jesus is talking about the cross, right? He's got to go do that. But then I also see this other thing happening here where he intrinsically ties the cross to going out and reaping the harvest in the fields. It's not just this one and done thing. It's like this, it's finished. And now there's this other thing that has to be done too. Right? So I think that's happening. But I think there's something else that I had never noticed. I've read this passage a million times. I have never noticed this ever. What does he compare it to? What does he say this work is? What does he say this is? He says it's bread. He says it's bread. Now, what do we, what do we talk about when we talk about bread? When Jesus talks about bread, when Jesus talks about bread, when he talks about the drink, the wine, when he talks about the water, the everlasting water, the water of life, when, when the Psalms talk about a tree planted by flowing water, it's nourished. When Genesis talks about the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life that makes you live forever, what is happening in all those things? It's Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. We just partook in this. 
We just took communion a little bit ago. This part's easy to see as so important because we, we do it all the time. And, and it's part of our personal faith as followers of Christ, right? To, to eat the bread and to drink the wine. But then Jesus is tying this other piece intrinsically to it and saying, you can't have one without the whole picture. He's saying, I have completed the work. I am the one going to the cross to complete the work. I've done it. All the prophets have laid a foundation. I'm here to complete it. And now you have to go out into the field because it is ripe for the harvest. And you are harvesting salvation. You are giving life to the people that are ready to hear it. They're out there. Just open your eyes. He goes on and he says more. In Luke 10, 1 through 3, he says, It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. What's he saying? Well, we're back to that harvest theme. The fields are ripe. There's people out there that need to hear hear the gospel. Pray that people will go do that. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? I had this brought to my attention recently, and I'll tell you, I haven't prayed that prayer often. That needs to be on the regular rotation for prayer. Here's the second thing. He doesn't stop it. Pray that people will go work. What's he then say? He says, go. Go, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. What are sheep? They're defenseless, they're dumb, they don't know any better, and wolves are sharp, nasty, bitey things, and they eat sheep. It's dangerous out there. What's the third thing he's saying here? Don't put on your sandals, don't grab a coin purse, don't talk to anybody on the road. What's that about? Don't waste any more time. Get going now. He's not speaking literally here. He's saying, you have to go. This is of the most urgent precedence. It has to happen right now. And here's something else I can't help but shake. He says, now go. Where else does he say that? The Great Commission. Now go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, which is to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that I've commanded you, right? It's everybody. Nobody gets an out on this. Why am I saying this? Because you may be hearing me right now and thinking, Zach, I just don't have the gift of evangelism. And that's a fair point. But we're not talking about that. See, evangelism... This concept of taking the gospel to people that don't have the gospel, but when we use that word, what do we really mean? We think of street preachers. We think of people standing out on the IUPUI campus on a soapbox yelling, if you're wearing running shorts, you're going to hell. That was at least what I saw when I was at Ball State. But um, it's stuff like that, right? Okay, that happens. It's good to go out and tell people, hey, listen, Jesus is real. Hell is real. If you don't know Jesus, you are in the, you're in danger of hell. You're going to hell if you do not know him, if you don't have a relationship with him. Going out and saying that to people on a soapbox, on the middle of a street corner, on a college campus, or to meet somebody in a store or at a bus stop or whatever, that's great. 
But that's the gift of evangelism. And it's not going to happen that way for everybody because some people just aren't wired for that kind of conversation. But that's not what this is talking about. The go in the Great Commission is a passive one. It's an as you are going. It's a when you go to work, when you go to that family gathering this weekend, when you go to that kid's birthday, when you go hang out with your brother or sister or your friends, when you see the people that are already around you, as you're going, make disciples. Jesus says, open your eyes, the fields are ripe. Well, what's that mean? That means it's right where you're standing. How does this all tie in? Let's look at Esther. She is exactly where she was supposed to be. God made Esther a specific way that she would catch the eye of King Xerxes, that he would marry her, that she would be his queen, that she would be the person that stands between the death, the genocide of the Jews, the people that she loves, that she would be able to stand between them because she would have the appropriate influence over a very specific man at a very specific point in a, a very specific place in history. And she saves the Jewish people because she is willing to say that her comfort is not as important as their salvation. And in the same way, God has put you, a very specific person that he made a very specific way, to have influence over a very particular group of people that he has placed in your life. There are people around you right now that do not know Jesus Christ. Seven out of every ten. I'm going to keep dropping it. And they need to know him. You are right where you need to be. You don't need to know anymore. You should keep learning. You should. We should always keep learning. But you're equipped right now. You have enough right now because you are who you need to be. The question is, are you going to allow your comfort to be more important than their salvation? And I think when we get right down to brass tacks, that's exactly what it comes down to for about 99% of us. If we aren't doing the things we've been called to do, I think that's most of the reason. Now on the flip side, if you are doing this, God bless you. Keep at it. Hear me out when I say this. What I don't mean is you better go every day be having a conversation with somebody and just converting them to Jesus. That's not how this works. It's little conversations. It's little by little. It builds on top of itself. I started at a barber shop uh, a year ago. It's my other gig. That's what I do when I'm not here. And it's full of people that don't know Jesus. And you know what? In the beginning, our conversations were hostile when it came to Jesus with some of them, okay? Like, nothing to do with Jesus. And then I catch them saying things like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure they're in a better place now. And I stop them now and I go, hey, what do you mean by that? And then they kind of smirk at me and they're like, okay, all right. It's these little conversations. It's not like it all just happens at once. It may take you years. It may take you decades. But the question is, are you pouring into those people? If you're not... 
Ask yourself, is it because your comfort's more important? If you are, God bless you. Keep it up. It's hard work out there. You are a sheep among wolves. Keep at it. Here's the third category. There are people in this room right now. There are people in every room across this country that are so busy that work jobs where they're by themselves. That seems like every opportunity they have to be around other people, it's Christians. I know those people exist. I know that is real. I know that's a real thing. And I get it. That is hard. That's such a hard situation to be put in. First of all, I want to say this. I don't think that's very many people. I don't think it's likely that that's you. But you may know better and you may know, say, no, it 100% is. And I believe you. I know that happens. But for that person, there's two options. One, change your schedule. Meet people. Take a day where you don't hang out with Christians and you just go make a hobby. Go bowling. Go do something. Form some relationships. And over the next however long, years, maybe you'll have some influence in some people's lives that need you. Or two, maybe that isn't an option. Maybe you have to be right where you're at. And that's fine. Because remember, we're all exactly where God needs us. Be Mordecai. Be Mordecai. Be the guy that can look at the people around you who have more flexibility, who are in a position where it's just prime time, where they could be pouring into people. Invest in those people. Invest in your fellow Christians and hold them accountable. Pray for them. Ask them, how is this going? How is this discipleship going in your life? What are you doing right now? Pray for them. Be for them. Fast for them. That's what they did in the story. When's the last time you fasted? That's a lost part in our culture, and it's got to come back. Fasting and prayer is crucial. Be for them. Be Mordecai when you can't be Esther. But you have a part to play in this. You are exactly where God needs you to be right now. And I think the biggest thing we just need to really consider today is whether I'm going to let my comfort be more important than the next person's salvation. And so, in theme with our series, it's time to get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. Jesus was an uncomfortable man. It describes him as a man of sorrow. His life was not an easy one. And when our life is good and it's easy and everything's going fine, that's a good time to take a step back and say, hey, what more could I be doing? This trend, this national trend, this Western civilization trend, it doesn't get turned around on its own. It's you and me. In our daily lives. Not through the next event that we host here at New Hope. Not through some special night that we can have. Not through some outreach event. Those things are good. Those things aren't bad. I'm not knocking them. We should do them. But it happens with you. It happens with you recognizing that you are where you're at for a reason and doing something about it. God bless you. Please consider these things. Let your heart break for the lost. And if it doesn't hurt for the lost, pray that God breaks you. I know that's a scary prayer. Pray that God breaks you. He broke Esther. That's what it took to move her to action. He broke Mordecai. That's what it took to move him to action. Pray that we break so we can go get to work.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just move in us, in our hearts. God, if you have never broken broken our hearts for the people around us that are dying, that don't have you, God, I pray that you would. I pray that you would change the way we see this world. I pray that you would help us to see that Christianity isn't about me. It's about Jesus. It's about his will. I pray that you would help us see that that everybody has to be on this page. That's the reason we're in the position we got in. It's not going to fix itself. Open our eyes, Lord, to to the harvest and teach us to pray for more workers and teach us to go, Lord, as we're going. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. I thank you for all that you do for us. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us everywhere we go. Lord, just open our eyes to the reality of things around us. Let us see that we are conquerors in Jesus Christ, that we are capable, that we are able to do so much, and we just don't get it. We think we are capable of so little. Lord, please just open our eyes. That's my prayer today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. take a moment as we respond to God's word this morning that I was really struck with the, the part about Esther fearing for her life and then her decision at the end was just if I perish I perish so as we consider God's word this morning and what he's calling us to do Let's take a moment and just ask it, Lord, to reveal what is in our heart that we fear. What is it that we're afraid of? Because clearly we don't have a king to go stand before and potentially lose our life, but what are we afraid of? That maybe God has put us in the exact place that you are in for such a time as this. Let's just pray and ask God to reveal our fear. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week and know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.